Hey baby. So it is 1226 on Sunday, April 11th, I think. Yeah, pretty sure it's the 11th. We're probably let me look right now. It's recording. Um, but it, this will be episode two, picking up on page 48 of Tuesdays with Maury. I don't know how long I'm going to read. Um, I'm going to read. Uh, okay. First chapter is called The First Tuesday We Talk About the World. Well, not the first chapter, but where we're picking up. Connie opened the door and let me in. Maury was in his wheelchair by the kitchen table, wearing a loose cotton shirt and even looser black sweatpants. They were loose because his legs, blah, blah, because his legs had atrophied beyond normal clothing size. You could get two hands around his thighs and have your fingers touch. Had he been able to stand, he'd have been no more than five feet tall, and he'd probably have to fit into his sixth grader's jeans. I got you something. I announced, holding up a brown paper bag. I, I had stopped on my way from the airport at a nearby supermarket and purchased some turkey, potato salad, macaroni salad, and bagels. I knew there was plenty of food at the house, but I wanted to contribute something. I was so powerless to help Maury otherwise, and I remembered his fondness for eating. Ah, so much food, he sang. Well, now you have to eat it with me. We sat at the kitchen table, surrounded by wicker chairs. This time, without the need to make up 16 years of information, we slid quickly into the familiar waters of our old college dialogue. Maury asking questions, listening to my replies, stopping like a chef to sprinkle in something I'd forgotten or hadn't realized. He asked about the newspaper strike, and true to form, he couldn't understand why both sides didn't simply communicate with each other and solve their problems. I told him not everyone was as smart as he was. Amen. Occasionally, he had to stop to use the bathroom, a process that took some time. Connie would wheel him to the toilet, then lift him from the chair and support him as he urinated into the beaker. Each time he came back, he looked tired. Do you remember when I told you, Ted Copel, that... Even when I told Ted Copel that pretty soon someone's going to have to wipe my ass, he said. I laughed. You don't forget a moment like that. Well, I think that day is coming. That one bothers me. Why? Because it's the ultimate sign of dependency. Someone wiping your bottom. But I'm working on it. I'm trying to enjoy the process. Enjoy it? Yes. After all, I get to be a baby one more time. That's a unique way of looking at it. Well, I have to look at life uniquely now. Let's face it, can't go shopping, can't take care of the bank accounts, I think I can't take out the garbage, but I can sit here with my dwindling days and look at what I think is important in life. I have both the time and the reason to do that. So I said in a reflexively cynical response, I guess the key to finding the meaning of life is to stop taking out the garbage. <laughs> he laughed, and I was relieved that he did. As Connie took the plates away, I noticed a stack of newspapers that had obviously been read before I got there. You bother keeping up with the news, I asked? Yes, Maury said. Do you think that's strange? Do you think because I'm dying I shouldn't care what happens in the world? Maybe. He sighed. Maybe you're right. Maybe I shouldn't care. After all, I won't be around to see how it all turns out. But it's hard to explain, Mitch. Now that I'm suffering, I feel closer to people who suffer than I ever did before. 
The other night on TV, I saw people in Bosnia running across the street, getting fired upon, killed, innocent victims. And I just started to cry. I feel their anguish as if it were my own. I don't know these people, but how can I put this? I'm almost drawn to them. His eyes got moist and I tried to change the subject, but he dabbed his face and waved me off. I cry all the time now, he said. Never mind. Amazing, I thought. I worked in the news business. I covered stories where people died. I interviewed grieving family members. I even attended funerals. I never cried. Mori, for the suffering of people half a world away, was weeping. This is what comes at the end, I wondered. Maybe death is the great equalizer. The one big thing that can finally make strangers shed a tear for one another. Oh. Mori honked loudly into the tissue. This is okay with you, isn't it? Men crying? Sure, I said, too quickly. He grinned. Ah, oh, Mitch, I'm gonna loosen you up one day. I'm gonna show you it's okay to cry. Yeah, yeah, I said. Yeah, yeah, he said. We laughed because he used to say the same thing nearly 20 years earlier. Mostly on Tuesdays. In fact, Tuesdays should always spend our day together. Most of my courses with Maury were on Tuesdays, he had office hours on Tuesdays, and when I wrote my senior thesis, which was pretty much Maury's suggestion right from the start, it was on Tuesdays that we sat together. By his desk, around the cafeteria, on the steps of Perlman Hall, going over the work. So it seemed only fitting that we were back together on a Tuesday, here in this house with the Japanese maple out front. As I ready to go, I mentioned this to Maury. We're Tuesday people, he said. Tuesday people, I repeated. Maury smiled. Mitch, you asked about caring for people. I don't even know. But I can tell you the thing I'm learning most of this disease. What's that? The most important thing in life is to learn how to give out love and to not let it come in. Or, and to let it come in. I just, the most important thing in life is to learn how to give out love and to let it come in. <coughs> Oh, I hope that wasn't insanely loud. Okay. How'd I get a hair in my mouth? Okay. His voice dropped to a whisper. Let it come in. We think we don't deserve love. We think if we let it in, we'll become too soft. But a wise man named Levine said it right. He said, love is the only rational act. He repeated it carefully, pausing for effect. Love is the only rational act. I nodded like a good student, and he exhaled weakly. I leaned over to give him a hug, and then although it did not really like me, I kissed him on the cheek. I felt his weakened hands on my arms, the thin stubble on his whiskers brushing my face. So you'll come back next Tuesday, he whispered. Oh, okay, it's about to do another one of those cutaways, but I gotta, I gotta go smoke. I didn't smoke before I started this. You can come along with the ride. We just gonna keep it going. Ow, my head hurts. Okay, okay, we are here at the Holy Land. Let's see if I can get this switched. Okay, there we go. I just gotta stay still close. This can be like ASMR, pot smoking. There we go.
Oh, let's go. I won't work. Try and get too close to that. Cough. <coughs> <coughs> oh, I'm a little bit. <coughs> Damn it. Okay. Yeah, we hit back now. I gotta admit, I actually kind of like that I've moved it to the side now because I don't worry about anyone seeing me like the paranoia and also because it the balls last long because I don't hit it as much and I get to just enjoy my house with peaceful things instead of being gone out of this fucking world for a short period of time okay all right we're back we're back we're back let me see get this sat back down oh I forgot about the other mic there's no telling what it picked up while I was walking look you may have not heard shit I'm sorry, yes, so, but just know you didn't miss much. I just went to this out of the building. Alright, now we're going back. Alright, remember, this is a cutaway now, like the flashback. He enters the classroom, sits down, doesn't say anything. He looks at us, we look at him. At first, there are a few giggles, but Mori only shrugs, and eventually a deep silence falls, and we begin to notice the smallest sounds. The radiator humming in the corner of the room. Nasal breathing on one of the fat students. Some of us are agitated. When is he going to say something? We squirm, check out our watches. A few students look out the window, trying to be above it all. This goes on for a good 15 minutes. Before my Mori finally breaks in with a whisper. What's happening here? He asks. And slowly a discussion begins. As Mori has wanted all along. How about the effect of silence on human relations? Why are we embarrassed by silence? What comfort do we find in all the noise? Oh, 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 Mori. Oh, I've talked about this, so I don't like the silence. I gotta have noise. Ooh. I'm not bothered by the silence. For all the noise I make with my friends, I'm still not comfortable talking about all my feelings in front of others, especially my classmates. I could sit in the quiet for hours if that is what the class demanded. On my way out, Maury stops me. He didn't say much today, he remarks. I don't know. I just didn't have anything to add. I think you have a lot to add. In fact, Mitch, you remind me of someone I knew who also liked to keep things to himself when he was younger. Who? Me. The second Tuesday, we talk about feeling sorry for yourself. Page 55. New chapter. I need to find a new way to introduce these chapters without actually, like, saying. Because they don't have chapter numbers. I don't know. We'll try again with the next one. Okay. I came back the next Tuesday, and for many Tuesdays that followed, I looked forward to these visits more than one would think, considering I was flying 700 miles to sit alongside a dying man. But I seemed to have slipped into a time warp when I visited Mori. I liked myself better when I was there. I no long, longer rented a cellular phone for the rides from the airport. Let them wait. 
I told myself. It became Lori. The newspaper situation in Detroit had not improved. In fact, it had grown increasingly insane with nasty confrontations between picketers and replacement workers. People arrested, beaten, lying in the street in front of delivery trucks. A lot of this, my visits with Maury felt like a cleansing risk of human kindness. We talked about life and we talked about love. We talked about one of Morty's favorite subjects, compassion. Why our society had such a shortage of it. Before my third visit, I stopped at a market called Bread and Circus. I had seen their bags in Maury's house and figured he must like the food there. And I loaded up with plastic containers from their fresh food takeaway. Things like vermicelli with vegetables and carrot soup and baklava. When I entered Maury's study, I lifted the bags as if I'd just robbed a bank. Food man, I bellowed. Maury rolled his eyes and smiled. Meanwhile, I looked for signs of the disease's progression. His fingers worked well enough to write with a pencil or hold up his glasses, but he could not lift his arms much higher than his chest. He was spending less and less time in the kitchen or living room and more in a study where he had a large reclining chair set up with pillows, blankets, and specially cut pieces of foam rubber that held his feet and gave support to his withered legs. He kept a bell near his side, and when, he, when his head needed adjusting or he had to go on the commode, as he referred to it, he would shake the bell with Connie, Tony, Bertha, or Amy. His small army of home care workers would come in. It wasn't always easy for him to lift the bell. He got frustrated when he couldn't make it work. Asked more if he felt sorry for himself. Sometimes in the mornings, he said. That's when I mourn. I feel around my body. I move my fingers and my hands. Whatever I can still move. And I mourn what I've lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying. And then I stop mourning. Just like that. I give myself a good cry if I need it. But then I concentrate on the good things throughout my life. On the people who are coming to see me, on the stories I'm going to hear, on you, if it's Tuesday. Because we're Tuesday people. I grinned. Tuesday people. Mitch, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, and that's all. Read that again. Mitch, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, and that's all. I thought about all the people I knew who spent many of their waking hours feeling sorry for themselves. How useful it would be to put a daily limit on self-pity. Just a few tearful minutes, and then on with the day. And if Maury could do it with such a horrible disease, it's only horrible if you see it that way. Maury said. It's horrible to watch my body slowly wilt away to nothing, but it's also wonderful because all the time I get to say goodbye. He smiled. Not everyone is so lucky. I studied him in his chair, unable to stand, to wash, to pull on his pants. Lucky? Did he really say lucky? During a break when Maury had to use the bathroom, I leased through the Boston newspaper, sat near his chair. There was a story about a small timber town where two teenage girls tortured and killed a 73-year-old man who had befriended them and threw a party in his trailer home and showed off the corpse. There was another story about the upcoming trial of a straight man who killed a gay man after the latter had gone on a TV talk show and said he had a crush on him. I know that story. I, know that. I remember that one. 
I put the paper away. Maury was rolled back in, smiling as always, and Connie went to lift him from the wheelchair to the recliner. You want me to do that? I asked. There was a momentary silence, and I'm not even sure why I offered, but Maury looked at Connie and said, Can you show him how to do it? Sure, Connie said. Okay, sorry, I had to reread for a second to make sure I understood what he was helping with. Following her instructions, I leaned over, locked my forearms under Maury's armpits, and hooked him toward me as if lifting a large log from underneath. When I straightened up, hoisted him as I rose. Normally, when you lift someone, you expect arms to tighten around your grip. But Maury could not do this. He was roughly dead. He was mostly dead weight, and I felt his head bounce softly on my shoulder, and his body sag against me like a big clamp loaf. Ah, he sang groanly. He softly groaned. I got you, I got you, I said. Holding him like that moved me in a way I cannot describe. Except to say I felt the seeds of death inside his shriveling frame. And as I laid him in his chair, adjusting his head on the pillows, I had the coldest realization that our time was running out. And I had to do something. Flashback. It was my junior year, 1978, when disco and Rocky movies are the cultural age. We are in an unusual sociology class at Brondi, something more he calls group process. Each week we study the ways in which the students in the group interact with one another, how they respond to anger, jealousy, attention. We are human lab rats. More often than not, someone ends up crying. I refer to it as the touchy-feely course. Moore says I should be more open-minded. On this day, Maury says he has an exercise for us to try. We are to stand, facing away from our classmates, and fall backwards, relying on another student to catch us. Most of us are uncomfortable with this, and we cannot let go for more than a few inches before stopping ourselves. We laugh in embarrassment. Finally, one student, a thin, quiet, dark-haired girl, whom I almost, who I noticed almost always wears bulky, white fisherman sweaters, Crosses her arms over her chest, closes her eyes, leans back, and does not flinch. Like one of those Lipton tea commercials where the model splashes into the pool. For a moment, I'm sure she is going to thump on the floor. At the last instant, her assigned partner grabs her head and shoulders and yanks her up harshly. Whoa. Several students yell. Some clap. Mori finally smiles. You see, he says to the girl, close your eyes. That was the difference. Sometimes you cannot believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. If you're ever going to have other people trust you, you must feel that you can trust them, too. Even when you're in the dark. Even when you're falling. Sorry, I just had a thinking of teaching stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been really contemplating it, and you've asked me. A lot of other people have asked me. Like, if you if you even I think Kilpatrick just asked me the other day. Like, if you had to teach another subject, like what well, what would it be? Like, if you got your practice, like what would it be? And like my quick answer is always math. I mean, like I'm great at math. I told you I. It would have made sense for me to go into math, but I can't teach math. 
Yeah, I've been over this. I think it would be English. I think I would enjoy English the most. I mean, I'm, I'm a grammar Nazi. I always have been. My bad grammar rubs me raw. Your, you use the wrong form of your, and I'm just, mm, or two. Mm. Like, I want to enjoy reading, and I think that would really be the thing that would push me to enjoy reading, because I would have to read these books that the uh, state assigns. So it'd be assignment, and I always, always read the book, except in college. I tried, I tried to read every book. If I did enjoy it, then I cheated with spark notes or something. I, uh, ironically, though, the only C I've ever gotten in my life was in my sophomore year at, um, well, I think technically I was a second year freshman at this time, because I would only had 16 hours at that point. No, third year. I, second year freshman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Second year freshman, yeah, because it would be my third semester. But, um, it was in my world literature class or something like that, something like that. And, um, I got a C. It was the only C I got in. And I'll, it was like a 78 or something. Like, it was close. And it's just because I slacked off. I didn't read the books. I didn't think much of it because of the first one. Because it was like world literature. Yeah, it was like world literature or something. Like, the first world literature one, I had just nailed. Like, I didn't try. I got an A. And then world literature two had a different professor. She was really serious. And I, I wish I had taken her when I had taken school more seriously. Like, my junior year or something. At UNA, like, cause she deserved to be at UNA. She was a great professor, and I just didn't take it too seriously, cause it was Northwest Shoals, and no one of my other professors were serious. Except Miss Wright in history, she was dope. Um, but she wasn't serious, but she was just dope. She was a great person. But she, uh, I just mean, I fucked up, and I tried, I tried to work too hard, kind of like you are with Dr. Schultz, but I didn't have a relationship with her, but. Honestly, like at the end of the year, I brought my grade up. At one point, I thought I was going to fail. And I ended up getting, almost getting back up to a B at the end because I started actually coming to class, paying attention, and just enjoying, like, participating in class discussions, reading the design, the required readings before class, re reading them before class, like skimming, skimming, skimming them just so I could remember what I wanted to, was going to say. I just enjoyed it and then I kind of like hated myself because I had missed out on half of my time in that class because of it and that was my last English class I ever took it was four years ago damn okay Third Tuesday, we talk about regrets. Yeah, no, deep work, deep voice don't work either. Um, okay, we'll try, we'll try something again the next chapter. Okay, page 62. The next Tuesday, I arrived with a normal bag of food. Pasta with corn, potato salad, apple cobbler, and something else. A Sony tape recorder. I want to remember what we talk about, I told Maury. I want you to have your voice so I can listen to it later. When I'm dead? Don't say that. He laughed. Mitch, I'm going to die. And sooner, not later. He regarded the new machine. So big, he said. 
I felt intrusive, as reporters often do, and I began to think that a tape machine between two people who were supposedly friends was a foreign object, an artificial ear. With all the people, cl people clamoring for his time, perhaps I was trying to take too much away from these Tuesdays. Listen, I said, picking up the recorder. We don't have to use this, if it makes you uncomfortable. He stopped me, wagged a finger, and hooked his glasses off his nose laying them dangle on the string around his neck. He looked at me square in the eye. Put it down, he said. I put it down. Alright, are we reading you? I zoned out. His voice dropped. Oh wait, Mitch. He continues softly now. You don't understand. I want to tell you about my life. I want to tell you before I can't tell you anymore. His voice dropped on, dropped to a whisper. I want someone to hear my story. Will you? I nodded. We sat quietly for a moment. So, he said, is it turned on? Now the truth is, that tape recorder was more than nostalgia. I was losing Maury. We all were losing Maury. His family. His friends, his ex-students, his fellow professors, his pals from the political discussion groups that he loved so much, his former dance partners, all of us. Now I suppose tapes, like photographs and videos, are a desperate attempt to steal something from this suitcase. But it was also becoming clear to me, through his courage, his humor, his patience, and his openness, that Maury was looking at life from some very different place than anyone else I knew. A healthier place. A more sensible place. And he was about to die. If some mystical clarity of thought came when you looked death in the eye, then I remember Maury wanted to share it. And I wanted to remember it for as long as I could. The first time I saw Maury on Nightline, I wondered what regrets he had once he knew his death was imminent. Did he lament his lot? Did he lament? 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 Did he lament his did he lament lost friends? Yeah, I think that's lament. Did he lament lost friends? Would he have done much differently? Selfishly, I wonder if I were in his shoes. Would I be consumed with sad thoughts of all that I had missed? Would I regret the secrets that I had kept hidden? When I mentioned this to Maury, he nodded. It's what everyone worries about me, isn't it? What if today were my last day on earth? He studied my face, and perhaps he saw an ambivalence about my own choices. I had this vision of me kneeling over my desk one day, halfway through a story, my editor snatching the copy as the medics carried my body away. Mitch, Maury said. I shook my head and said nothing, but Maury picked up on my hesitation. Mitch, he said. The culture doesn't encourage you to think about such things until you're about to die. We're so wrapped up with egotistical things, career, family, having enough money, meeting the mortgage, getting a new car, fixing the radiator when it breaks. We're involved a trillion little of acts just to keep us going. So we don't get into the habit of standing back and looking at our lives and saying, Is this all? Is this all I want? Is this something, is something missing? Paused. You need someone to probe you in that direction. It won't just happen automatically. I knew what he was saying. We all need teachers in our lives. The mound was sitting in front of me. 
you know, this this brings up like a really, really good point about me and you. This this is both of us. Me and you are very mature for our age. Like we're goofy as shit, right? We're goofy, we're immature when it comes to how we act and shit. But the shit we've been through in the life, the mental preparedness we have for life, the knowledge we have, we know what we're doing with our death. We think about death all the time. I told you death consumes me. It consumes my thoughts sometimes because curiosity, we question things. It's what we do. We're people of science. We are graduating with bachelors of sciences in less than a month. We smoke weed every day and then get up the next morning and go do our fucking jobs. We beat the narrative. We are the exception. Because we refuse to conform to cultural's identity. What cultural says we should be. We believe in facts. And we never stop learning. I fucking love us. Alright, off my high horse. Let me just climb down off the saddle. <coughs> and I lost the page and the book closed. So I'll uh, take a drink of water. Okay. Book SMR. Yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Fine, I figured. If I was to be the student, then I would be as good a student as I could be. On the plane ride home that day, I made a small list on the yellow legal pad issues and questions that we all have, that we all grapple with, from happiness to aging to having children to death. Of course, there were a million self-help books on these subjects and plenty of cable TV shows and $90 per hour consultation sessions. Mary had become a Persian bazaar of self-help. But there still seemed to be no clear answers. You could take care of others, or take care of your inner child, return to traditional values, or reject tradition as useless, seek success, or seek simplicity. Just say no, or just do it. All I knew was this. Maury, my old professor, was in the self-help business. He was standing on the tracks, listening to this locomotive whistle and he was very clear about the important things in life. I wanted that clarity. Every confused and tortured soul I knew wanted that clarity. Ask me anything more, he always said. So I wrote this list. Death, fear, aging, greed, marriage, family, society, forgiveness, a meaningful life. List was in my bag when I returned to Western for the fourth time. A Tuesday in late August when the air conditioning at the Logan Airport terminal was not working and people fanned themselves and wiped sweat annually from the foreheads and every face I saw looked ready to kill somebody. Flashback. <sighs> 
By the start of my senior year, I have taken so many sociology classes that I'm only a few credits shy of a degree. Or he su suggests I try an honors thesis. Me, I ask, what should I write about? What interests you, he says. We, we bat it back and forth until we finally settle on, of all things, sports. I begin a year-long project on how football in America has become ritualistic, almost a religion, an opiate for the masses. I have no idea that this is training for my future career. I only know it gives me another once-a-week session with Maury. And with this help, by spring I have a 112-page thesis, researched, footnoted, documented, and neatly bound in black leather. I show it to Maury with the pride of a little leaguer rounding the bases on his first home run. Congratulations, Maury says. I grin as he leaves through it, and I glance around his office. The shelves of books, the hardwood floor, the throw rug, the couch. I think to myself that I've sat just about everywhere there is to sit in this room. I don't know Mitch. Maury muses, adjusting his glasses as he reads. With work like this, we may have to get you back here for grad school. Yeah, right, I'll say. I snicker, but the idea is momentarily appeasing. Part of me is scared of leaving school. Part of me wants to go desperately. Tension of opposites. I watch Moy as he reads my thesis and wonder what the big world will be like out there. All right, we're gonna stop right there. On page 69, nice, nice. Okay, love you baby, see you for part uh, three.